Hello, I'm Josh, and this is Why Satan. So, I've been meaning to start this podcast for a while. Many things got in the way, including an eye infection that made looking at the computer completely impossible, to the point it was painful. But I'm out of excuses, even to the point that my girlfriend made me a logo, so I had to start doing it. Anyway, this won't be an introductory episode. The reason for that is... Basically, I suck at introducing myself, so I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. Also, apologies if there is any sounds of a fan my air conditioner needs to be on, as it's hot as hell. As you can tell from the title of the episode, I plan on discussing why exactly teachers are far better trained than your cops. At first, I didn't even think about this. This idea for an episode came about when I was talking on the Baphomet Discord. Someone mentioned that as a teacher, especially a special needs teacher, that I likely have more training than most police officers. I assumed that, yeah, probably. Then I looked into it more deeply, and I can safely say, basically any teacher who has been trained or taught within the past at least 15 years, or even almost 20 now, is better trained than nearly any police officer you run into on the street. For this, I compared my own experience as becoming a teacher in Massachusetts to a police officer in Boston. The reason for this is I thought, as a liberal city in a liberal state, the requirements for a police officer would be higher than most places. So what did I find? I found enough to actually make me angry. Um, probably as I go through this, I will actually become angry again. I've yet to look at the police requirements and not become angry. Anyway, let's start off by looking at what it takes to be a police officer in Boston. I get my information directly from the website in which you can look at and research and apply to be a cop in Boston. So, the requirements are, in order to become a police officer in Boston, candidates must meet certain qualifications. The first qualification is to have established residency in Boston for at least one year prior to taking the Mass State Civil Service exam. Now that's good because, among other things, it keeps the money that the police are earning in the city more than if the police were living outside of Boston. Anyway, continuing. To be hired as a police officer, candidates must have a high school diploma or GED and be licensed to drive in Massachusetts. Each applicant must also meet physical fitness standards. That's it. That is all you need to apply to become a Boston cop. That's it. Now, it does say the candidates who have college credits and associates or bachelor's degree may have a higher chance of being hired and will have higher pay and may be positioned to advance in rank more quickly. However, it doesn't say that's required. It explicitly isn't required. It doesn't even explicitly say what courses are available. I looked on the site. It doesn't say. So hopefully the college credits that they would allow are relevant rather than like, I don't know, pottery or something ridiculous like that. Who knows? I don't. And I couldn't find out. So what training do they get after they meet these minimum standards? After they are officially hired? Well, after being hired, recruits 
complete approximately 20 weeks of intensive physical and academic training at the Boston Police Academy. So I thought, 20 weeks? It doesn't sound that long. What do they do in a police academy? Well, I did some digging, and I couldn't find it on that site. However, what I did find was a website called Police App, and the purpose of this site is to... It's basically a job hunting site for cops. So, it does note that each academy and state have their own requirements. This site explains that if you're going to the academy after you've been hired, it will cost you nothing. However, if for some reason you go to the academy without being hired, it can cost you, on average, $6,700. I mean, that's pretty cheap compared to what I had to pay for my master's degree. The best part, however, is it states you will receive your full starting salary while you're training at the academy. I got paid nothing when I was doing my student teacher training. For six months, I worked as a teacher with no pay. None at all. And I was still paying my college, obviously. They give a note that there are a few different things you will learn at the academy. They state that you will learn things like state law, investigation techniques, computer skills, report writing, practical hands-on instruction in things like firearm handling, first aid, driving, and combat fighting techniques. There's something that's missing there. Um... It's de-escalation techniques. They will teach you how to beat the shit out of somebody, but they don't really seem to do very well on saying that you will learn how to de-escalate the situation. It may very well be that they do teach that, they just don't note it on this site, and really not that I can find. There are places that I've heard will teach de-escalation. However, at 20 weeks... I'm going to say you're not learning most of this. You might learn it poorly. You might learn two or three of these things. At most, maybe. You might learn even four. If you're good, maybe you'll learn four. But I don't, I don't see how you learn all of these at all. It, like I said, you might learn them poorly. In different parts of this uh, site, they do mention a lot about handgun training. Specifically, they even note that part of the training is... Repeatedly squeezing a handgun trigger, I, I guess for when you really need to make sure that you pump all those bullets into the bodies, apparently. But that's it. There is your trained officers, I suppose. That is our well-trained officers at work, apparently, who make more money than I do in Boston. Oh, but right, they supposedly have a very dangerous job. Other than the most dangerous job in the United States is logger. Police are pretty low on the list of dangerous jobs and to top it all off the study i was looking into noted that police deaths also cover things like suicide and dying in a car crash because they didn't have their seatbelt on so a lot of the deaths have nothing to do with violent criminals it is mistakes accidents even suicides so no well your job statistically on paper is more dangerous than a teacher's job it doesn't seem like it's that much more dangerous than a teacher's job. Anyway, let's move on and see what I had to deal with. My bachelor's degree is in history and my master's is in education, so that is at least six years right there. I'm not going to count the bachelor's degree in history, so let's just say two years. Then I also had to take a licensing exam, which wasn't too bad. Granted, I studied pretty hard for it. Outside of that, I have some 
CPI training, which I will get into a bit later. Then I had six months of student teaching, which basically means I'm being a teacher for no pay. So what did I actually learn during my education courses? Going down a list, the first is inclusion classes. These classes help you learn how to teach people who may have different needs. This is where the special needs training comes in. Example would be how to teach differently for different needs, such as if a student requires visual learning, verbal learning, kinetic learning, different things like that. Also, how to read and deal with individualized education plans, which most students with special needs have. The next class on my list is developmental psychology. Obviously, this would be important for a teacher as you need to know how different students at different ages develop, how they learn differently at different ages, along with the idea that at different ages, students will react in different ways to different things. The next thing that is learned is ELL training, which is for English language learners. This is to help people who are just learning English be in your classroom. You might not be the one teaching them English, but you can use different techniques to make things easier on them while they are learning and make it easier to learn, even though you're not an English teacher. Then there is classes on educational methods. This is how to teach. Before you take this course, you must first do the developmental psychology class and the inclusion class and the ELL class. The reason for this is you cannot develop your educational methods for your class without understanding the different needs of different students and therefore how to mold your education to each student. You then go on to learning to do lesson planning. This is not just for records. This is learning how to plan out a lesson so things are spaced correctly. You learn where breaks are useful, about how long it takes students at different ages to complete things, about how long you need to prep for the next thing. There's a whole class on that. Then you have another big one is behavioral psychology. I will say in my school, there are people who all they do is they're behavioral psychologists. They're analytical behavioral psychologists, and they come help teachers figure out, especially students with behavioral problems in the classroom, and they try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. But all teachers get this training. The idea is that you can look at a student's behavior and figure out why they're doing it. Normally, the well-known example that most teachers will probably know is the idea of the student who always causes problems right before students are asked to read something aloud. And the idea behind this is that the student probably has some difficulty reading. They may read at a lower level than their peers. They may be embarrassed to read in front of their peers. And so, rather than do something stupid that some teachers do, like picking students out at random to read, which is really not what you should be doing. You should let students volunteer to read and sort of encourage ones that you have a feeling can do well. Then what you do is you notice the pattern of students who do not read and do not want to read. You then pick out specifically easier passages for them to read and you let them read those. The basic idea of this class is learning triggers that lead to behaviors. And after a while, a teacher who has done this long enough doesn't even need to think about it. They can see, ah, 
I know this trigger may have this effect, so I'm going to avoid it. Or if it does happen again, they'll be able to recognize what probably triggered that event. It makes sense that you'd want something like this even, you know, offered to police officers. Because most people, even though we like to say we're individual, we're still people. We have similar psychologies. Sometimes culture can change this. Like there are certain students who I have that I know because of their culture, I need to do things a bit differently. And finally, there is a class on classroom management, which puts everything together. Now, during student teaching, I also had a class that focused on the laws and important state requirements that were needed of me. I don't knock a student to the ground and put them in a chokehold. You know, basic ideas like that. And finally, we get to what I was talking about, CPI training. CPI is the Crisis Prevention Institute, where they teach what they call nonviolent crisis intervention. Sounds important for police to learn. Now, they can, but most are not required to. Now, what they can do is take CPI training as part of their required learning credit, which some states require, some don't. It's not required. They don't have to take this course as part of their continued learning. In my opinion, this should be part of Police Academy Basics. But what exactly is CPI or nonviolent crisis intervention? Well, the website states that it is a training program that includes physical interventions and personal safety techniques, which are designed to maximize the safety of everyone involved in a crisis situation. However, the real intent of training is for staff to learn a system of verbal and physical intervention techniques that can help them recognize and address escalating behavior at its early stages before it can escalate further. They note to only use physical restraint as the last resort. They note that CPI teaches that staff should consider the use of physical intervention only as an emergency intervention when an individual poses immediate danger to themselves or others. They also teach that physical restraint should only be used as a last resort in all, when all attempts to calm the escalating behavior have failed. The root of the program focuses on the idea that these are things you can do so you don't need to do physical restraints. But if you are required to do physical restraints, here is the best practices on how to do them. Here is the safest physical restraint you can do. They note that any physical restraint can be dangerous and psychologically damaging, especially to younger children and even more so for students with special needs. So something that I might learn in this CPI training would be that most of the time you don't chase a student if they run away from you. Even a special needs student, you don't necessarily chase the student. The reason is because normally they're just running away from a situation they don't like and chasing them can escalate the situation. 90% of the time, at least in the students that I deal with, if a student runs out of the classroom, they are going to the bathroom. They are going around the corner to stomp a bit or get upset and cool themselves off. They are going to just mope around the halls for a little bit, and then they're going to come back. There are students who actually want to be chased. You learn to recognize these students. One of the key things is they will run if they am not sure if you're chasing they will slow down, look behind you, and if they see you, they tend to smile, and they keep running. You don't chase those students, they'll come back. 
Now, there are certain students that will run, and they are danger to themselves if they run, because they might try to get out of the building. With this training, if you have to stop a student, you have to do so in a very specific way. Example, you can't grab them by the wrists. One, you're grabbing them in a spot that might spin them around and cause them to fall. Secondly, you may sprain their wrists. They're not secure, so they might swing around and hit you. Now, you also don't want to knock them to the ground for obvious reasons. They can get hurt. There is almost no reason you'd want to knock a student to the ground. There might be some reasons you might want to grab a student by the wrist. Example would be an immediate harm, but these are still things you don't want to do with a student. Normally, the technique of trying to stop a student who's running is to get in front of them and make some sort of contact, get them into a conversation to get them to stop. If you have to get in their way, you can try to attempt to block them physically. If you were coming up from behind a student and you must grab them, the way that you were trained to do it is you grab them from up under the arms. And the reason for this is then they can't really hurt themselves. You also tend to lean back slightly so their weight is against you so there is no chance of you falling. Yes, there is a chance they whip their head back and smack you in the face and break your nose, but let's be honest, no one cares. Well, people care, but if it's you getting hurt versus the child getting hurt, people will be happier if you're the one who gets hurt. That's just how it is. Everyone knows this in my school. It is normally better for you to get hurt than the child to get hurt, because we're adults, we can deal with like a little bloody nose or a scratch. You're not going to get in trouble if you go to the school nurse all scratched up because a student decided that they want to get away from you. Now, you will get in trouble if a student gets hurt, because, again, no one cares. I mean, they care in the same way that they feel bad, but in the end of the day, it's your job. You're working with special needs students. You got hurt. It happens. On the other hand, there is... Well, I want you to look up a type of police training called killology. J just the word sounds ridiculous. But the basic idea is to train police in the mindset that they are a warrior that needs to try everything they can to come home at night. This gives the completely wrong mindset, as it gives the police the idea that basically everything's a threat. It doesn't work that way. I don't walk into my special needs classroom with the idea that, well, I might get hurt. One of these students might bite me or scratch me. No, I use my training to look at behaviors that likely are going to come before this escalation. I don't see why cops are not trained in this or if they are, they don't use it. There is no reason that more is expected of me as a teacher to restrain myself when I don't have, like, you know, a gun than a police officer who has, you know, lethal weapons and has immunity for when they hurt somebody on the job. No. If I hurt a student, even slightly, the principal is going to want to know why. I need to fill out a report. It has to be explained what happened. I can safely say I've never hurt a student. I've been involved in some pretty not good situations. I have dealt with students who attack me and attack others, attack other students. I've never hurt a student, ever. I don't know anyone on the staff who has ever hurt a student. Now, someone might restrain a student and they might say, ow, because, you know, I'm sure it's not comfortable. I've been in these holds to demonstrate them on me, and they're not comfortable, but you're not going to hurt someone with the proper training. So for the life of me, 
I don't understand why police don't get this training. It's out there. It's there. Your teachers get it. Especially your special needs teachers. That little old lady that probably works in the special needs department at, like, your school or your kid's school, they probably have some idea of special needs training. And maybe even CPI training. The school crisis prevention officers, you know, like, that one teacher who everyone was a little scared of because he was the person who showed up to break up fights. Yeah, he has CPI training. Now, the people I know who don't have CPI training, because they've said they don't have CPI training, are the officers that actually work in our school. And they're always the last to show up whenever there's any sort of conflict. Which, honestly, fine by me, they tend to make it worse anyway, so I'd rather them not show up at all. So I'm going to go out on a limb, and I don't think it's that much of a limb to say that I think if an armed teacher, and please God, don't arm teachers, that's a whole different topic, but if an armed teacher had been the one to confront or handle or have a conversation with George Floyd, he'd be live today. I guarantee it. There was almost nothing you could tell me that would make me think otherwise. That the idea of a teacher confronting someone would be less dangerous than a cop confronting them. For one, teachers don't get killology taught to them, which needs to be illegal. I'll find some articles and put them in the show notes. But thank you for your time, and thank you for bearing with me as I learn how to handle all this recording, editing in dealing with podcast stuff. I'm not exactly sure what I might do for the next one. I have some ideas I'm kicking around that I already have notes on. But till next time, which I hope is fairly soon, this has been Why Satan and Hail Satan.